Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fuck nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is WTF, my podcast. How's it going, huh? Right when you think it could only get worse, it does. That's a constant in the current world, the current environment, the current cultural moment, the current now. Jesus fucking Christ. Huh? I can't fucking take it, man. On top of everything else, on top of my own personal journey. I like how we use that word journey. Hey, life is a journey, man. It's not about uh, meeting your goals or getting everything you want. It's the journey, man. It's about the journey. Enjoy the journey. I got to be honest with you. I think the journey's not great right now. I think that the vessel we're on, not terrific. Tough, uh, tough to appreciate the journey. Maybe if I'm looking back and I'm like, I can't believe our bus made it through that shit. That'll be nice. Then I could see the journey thing. But right now, on the road, on the edge, on this fucking crumbling dirt road of democracy in a bus that's overcrowded with people that are trying to have hope and some are crying in the back of the bus and the sound system doesn't work and the driver is sweating. Not a great journey. There's a fucking earthquake here the other night. Yeah, on top of everything else. Happy New Year, Jews. Happy uh, New Year to everybody who doesn't who don't acknowledge that this is the Jew New Year. We've been doing New Year. We've been doing the New Year thing for five thousand seven hundred eighty some odd years, I think it is. But uh, Happy New Year to those in the tribe, those who are uh, adjacent to the tribe. I hope the apples and honey work it's going to take a lot of apples and honey man a lot of fucking apples and honey and i know there are some people in this world that just are sort of like hey fuck it man there's not much we can do and you know it was never good and it was never going a good place and it was always inevitable it doesn't end it well for anybody man just enjoy the ride situation all right i get that but the ride stinks right now it's a shitty amusement park it's a fucked up broken ride and it doesn't look like the fucking guy is even at the controls anymore. And the guy who, who seems to be running the whole park is out of his fucking mind. What is it, metaphor day? Pow, look out. Just shit my pants. Justcoffee.coop. A little throwback. 
I'm sorry, am I too negative? How you doing? Everything all right with the kid? Did you figure out what that thing was? Maybe you should get some more detergent then. I mean, how long are you going to put that off? I know it's scary to go to the store, but, you know, just fucking suit up and go. Suit up and go. Today, we got a double header, actually. We have uh, Alicia Keys for like a half hour and then John Leguizamo for a bit, for almost an hour. It just worked out that way. It's sort of a New Yorker, real New Yorker-themed show today. They both talk like uh, they're from the fucking city, you know? Because they are. It's, you know, I, I, I can explain it to you. Here's what happened. I had a little scheduling botch. You know, I somehow the my doctor's appointment didn't show up in the calendar, and I made it months ago, and I needed to go, and it kind of cut into the Alicia Keys time a little bit, so we pushed it 15 minutes, which was fine. But then I actually got back in time, but they couldn't push it back, and she only had an hour to begin with, and then she was running 15 minutes late. So point being, we got about 30 minutes and I was focused. Now, this is like one of those learning experiences, you know, really for me in, in the in the big picture. You know, I didn't grow up with the Alicia Keys. Yeah, I know the song she did with Jay-Z. I think I've heard some of her biggest hits, but it really, really wasn't in my radar. It wasn't on my radar, wasn't in my world, but I know she was great. I know she made big hits. I know she was a prodigy and a brilliant artist. I knew that, but I didn't know her stuff. So when this happens, I'm like, I, I think I should talk to her, but I'm going to have to get in it. I'm going to have to get into the work. So that makes me get into the work. So I listened to her past hits, some of her past records, did a little poking around in you know her history, but then I just focused on the new record, uh, Alicia. So this is a record. It's been quite a few years since her last one. She's older now. She's wiser now. She's coming at it from a different angle. And I just kind of focused on that record and listened to it and listened to the words and and you know kind of absorbed where she was at and what she was talking about and kind of used that as a template. So this is like, if if I ever do prepare, this is it. It's like, I take the piece of art that they've created and I see the span of their life through the lens of that piece of work. The most uh, recent work is how I done, I did it with this one. I don't know that I do it this way all the time, but, but it enabled me an immediacy uh, to sort of connect with her. And I don't know that her and I would have talked, you know, in if we ever in our lives. It almost feels like we live in different worlds. I don't know that if we if we did talk in another time that we would have like talked this long. So it's sort of interesting. It's a real sort of like, you know, bridge, you know, to a type of music I don't know, to an upbringing I don't know. Culturally, we're different in a lot of ways. And it was great. It was just sort of I locked in with the work and I locked in with her. I'll share it with you, all right? Her new album, Alicia, is out uh, now wherever you get music. And this is, uh, just listen, we lock right in. This is me and Alicia Key. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or 
needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Alicia. Okay. Hi, Mark. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Thank you-, you. I'm really glad to be connecting with you. Yeah, it's nice to talk to you. I mean, you, is, is it crazy? You doing a million of these now? I mean, no, I mean, I'm doing a, a lot of different things, but honestly, I feel great. I just, I feel, I feel excited. I feel really in a, in a special place right yeah. now. So I'm, I'm, I'm in my bliss. Yeah. Special place. Mm-hmm. And it took a while to get there. It's been a long while. <laughs> and so I'm just, I'm just glad to be here, man. <laughs> Cause I was noticing like, it's been. The, the last couple of records, you got about four years in between them. And then I was listening to the songs on this record and I was like, wow, some shit went down. There's, there, <laughs> I, That's so good. <laughs> I don't know what, but, but there's a lot of reflection. There seems to be some uh, relationship difficulty. A little shout out to uh, people who are the less fortunate. There's a, a fairly radical song about... Uh, about the police, but it seems like everything's covered. Yeah, I guess so. You know, I mean, I couldn't even have guessed how this music was meant to be for this time. Um, I mean, I feel like I've always been honored that my music is timeless. Yeah. But I definitely couldn't imagine how the music that I wrote, you know, even two years ago, a year ago, however long ago it takes to put all of it together, is relevant more than ever right now you know certain things are beyond your control and certain things are just how they're supposed to be and i I feel like i'm in one of those moments where it's just like everything is where it's supposed to be right well sadly you know a song like perfect way to die you know remains forever relevant until change comes you know i really can't wait because it's like i really know that there's so many of us that don't want to see that same situation played out we don't want to see this blatant disrespect for black lives and and we, we, you know, daily, it's like, it's like a barrage of like too much and it's not right. So I really can't wait for us to collectively decide to, to just never do that again. And it's interesting because like, I mean, you grew up in New York and you grew up like in, in a, in a part of New York that was rough and mm-hmm. it, it would seem to me, and I know also that you did, you did some performing for like the police athletic league when you were younger, but the relationship Right, your personal relationship with the neighborhood and the police that you grew up with has got to be different than than what you see right now. I mean, to be honest, I mean there was there's always been a natural distrust for police officers. Sure. To be honest, I yeah. mean, so I, I I mean I can't say we we didn't grow up in a way where it was like, oh hey, go find a police officer and ask him to help. <laughs> like that's a whole other neighborhood, right? And I think that's the I think that's the point of a lot of these conversations that sure. we're ha- having right now yeah. in regards to where do funds go and, 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 you know, what is actually the ro- the proper way to spend a city's funds. Um, but it seems, you know, it seems like there's, there's, you know, regardless of what you know or what you experience, there's definitely two Americas 
And so it feels like one side of America can approach the police and be protected by them and another side can expect to be brutalized by them. So it's like that's kind of what it is. That's it. And you, where'd you grow up in New York? In Hell's Kitchen? Hell's Kitchen and also Harlem. Like, what was Hell's Kitchen? What was that in the 80s? Yeah, it was like, yeah, the 80s. The, yep, so it wasn't was quite, it. It, wasn't, it wasn't quite good yet, was it? No, it's way far from being good. It was, it was nasty. It's definitely. I mean, I like to say that it, it's like the place where all the misfits and the outcasts and the unwanted ones were congregating. And we between ninth and tenth. Yeah, I was actually right on tenth. Oh, so yeah. I was like right there. It's West like the highway. Yeah, like the city just sort of drops off there. <laughs> it's like the edge of of civilization, right? Especially because it was before, like now there's all these cool things on the piers and there's right. all these places and there's like stuff to do. But at that time it was desolate. Like yeah. it was not, you didn't, you didn't dare go to the pier. That was right. not the place where you went. Not if you wanted to come back. Right. So it was, it was, it was, it's so interesting how things evolve and everything. But yeah, that's what it was. And it was like, was it, it was just you and your mom? Yeah, me and my mother. My mother is an amazing woman, single mother. She raised me. Yeah. She chose to have me and chose to fight for me. And she's, you know, incredible. Still my best friend to this day. So like growing up in that neighborhood, I mean, it, you know, being, it, do, you, do you have siblings? I have a brother, but he didn't grow up with me in that neighborhood. I was, my, I'm my mother's only child. Oh, I'll get it. I get it. Do you have a relationship mm-hmm. with that guy? My brother? Yeah. Uh, yes. Oh my God. She's my, he's my like baby i love him he's he's 10 years younger than me so we have like a really beautiful brother sister vibe but it's just it's like he's almost like my first kid in yeah. a way yeah yeah you yeah. know so so there's like a real real love and protection there but now he's all taller than me so i'm like his little sister now and he's my big brother and whatever <laughs> yeah <laughs> so like when did, when you started getting into music was it primarily to to you know get to to avoid you know, the danger of that neighborhood? Mm, I think, you know, when I got into music, when I first got into music, it was because I was definitely drawn. I was drawn to the piano in almost like a spiritual way that I don't even exactly know why or what made me, it call me. So it definitely called me from a young age. Even before I could play, I knew I wanted to play, even though I couldn't play. I wanted to, and so... Where'd you first see it? Where do you remember first seeing, like, you know, that's what I got to... Look at that. Yeah, I remember, like, walking down the street and passing piano stores, you know, like in New York, and, you know, and and I would just be fascinated, like, and I just put my nose to the window and look at it and just be, like, I want to go in there and play, but I didn't know how to play, so what was I going to go in there and do? But I just knew I wanted to, and it was that type of energy. My, My grandmother, my mother's mother, played played piano and that was cool because she when she would come stay with me if my mother had to go away we would practice piano together and and she definitely had a vibe like that other than that there wasn't really anybody that played piano around me like that my mother wasn't a very you know uh musician she was an she was an actor but she wasn't a musician but there was always creative energy around me all the time and so i think i was always just kind of like taken in by that creative spirit and spark what was the music in the house? 
the music in the house was, you know, a lot of jazz, a lot of kind of Ella Fitzgerald, a lot of Bobby Caldwell, um, definitely some Miles Davis. And uh, there was a lot of, uh, you know, Aretha Franklin's and Etta James and yeah. Marvin Gaye's, the classics, all the classics. So you had that going and you, you know, you knew that you, that's a pretty good range of stuff. And it, it was like if you were to sort of explain where you're coming from, I'd say, you know, most of those are it, right? Yeah. And then I think, and then obviously in my, in my, you know, and then I was introduced from the streets and from my friends to Nas and, and Wu-Tang and Biggie Smalls and Tupac and right. all of that, all of that influence was like my secondary, my other ether. And so it was kind of this mix between soul and then and then I was playing classical music. So I was playing Chopin and Satie and Debussy. And, and so it was this mixture between soul and classical and hip hop. Can you listen to classical now? Oh, my God. So much. Really? And I love it. I, I don't, love it. I don't understand. Like I it's one. Of, it's like the only music that I don't get. I mean, I understand. I it's think beautiful. when we finish, I think when we finish this conversation, you should listen to Debussy. Okay. I will. And that will give you a vibe because there's, there's, look, there's plenty of classical music, plenty of classical um, arrangements and music that I cannot listen to. It's too like hippity, hippity. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to hear that type, but yeah. when I'm hearing like this very soulful, moody, bluesy, dark chords and it's like gorgeous and the arrangements are unbelievable, I am like, my mind is blown. So it's definitely, I would say go for Debussy after this. Thank you. But you like, like when you studied it, did you like, do you get the whole, cause like, I don't even know how it works as a, like, I don't know how a symphony works. I don't know what movements are. I don't know, you know, why it fits together. Do you? Yeah, I think that's, yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> and I studied it. And so I think that's a really, I'm really proud of that part of my, um, you know, my, my upbringing, I think that it, it really gave me another perspective that a lot of people don't get a chance to explore and experience. And even with sight reading and even with yeah. just knowing how to read notes, period, like that's a, that's a big, um, a big, a, a big reason why I can arrange and why I can hear voicings in my head in a way that I think other people's people's other people can't. Um, yeah. but I, you know, I, I think movements are the most beautiful. One of one of my favorite um, is, is very very popular, but one of my favorite Chopin songs is Chopin is one of my favorites too. Yeah, is um, called the Raindrop Prelude. You've heard it before, without question. But the second movement is actually to me the most beautiful because it feels like the thunder and yeah. the more dark and bluesy for me, I'm like, I'm in this, like, put me in a mood, get me in my emotions. I'm all yeah. in. So, yeah. so it, it feels like the thunder and you can hear how it's cracking and yeah. growing and the, and, and all of that. And, and so that's one of my favorites. So I, I love how movements go together. Um, and that there's actually a thought behind why it evolves the song. And, and like, I imagine in order to learn how to do that, you obviously had a gift for it, but you were very young when you started playing the piano. But the discipline it takes to do that and to get locked into that and the sort of it's almost uh, I just talked. I remember who I talked to about about the military and about how mm. his experience in the military defined how he approached work in general. You know, you could see it programmed his brain. So uh, I imagine that that discipline must have been laid that wiring for you to get shit done. You know what? That's, that's absolutely right. I mean, I, you know, there was, there, 
was a certain level of discipline that, and there is a certain level of discipline that comes with classical music that just doesn't come with anything else. You just can't pretend to play classical music. You just have, you have to study it. You have to work at it. You have to break it down. Each measure has to be broken down. The complexities are, you're using sides of your brain that don't even usually go together. It's definitely like a, an, an experience that I'm, I'm grateful also that, of course, when I was a kid, I was like, y'all get off my back like why do I have to practice this stuff but the effort and the discipline of learning how to put in work yeah is you know priceless I'm nobody cannot work me because I I understand what it means to put in work like and I'm not afraid to put in work I'm also learning that I also have to take breaks and you have to be healthy and you can't like burn yourself to the ground because that's not gonna work either when, when did you but learn that when you I were 10 I know how to work no, I didn't learn that for a long, long time. Probably when I had my first kid, then I was like, oh, you know, somebody's more important than me. So I have to, you know, pay attention. Well, that's nice that you recognize that as a mother. Yeah. Some mothers don't. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely, I mean, once you got that little being in your hand, you're like, I cannot believe this being needs me for everything. It's Everything. How many you got? You have two? Yeah, I have two. My husband has three before me. And and I, we have two together, so we have five all together. So I am definitely a, like, it's so cool for me because I, I get to see the spectrum. Like, you know, our kids are five and nine, yeah. but I get to see like, what happens when they're 13? What happens when they're 19? It's like a thing. So I feel like it teaches me a lot for what, you know, what's going to come and how I want to keep my, keep open, you know, yeah. about it all. Well, in, in terms of like the work, like it, I imagine that understanding classical classical music because you seem to collaborate with a lot of people, and you seem to do it well, which is sort of a, a unique thing and sort of a gift. And and I guess as an mm. arranger, on this record, you collaborated with a few people, eh? Yeah, you know, I used to absolutely be so frightened of collaboration because it's so you know like exposing. You get exposed all your things and oh, your right, idiosyncrasies right, yeah. and the way that you feel it's like you have to be so honest so sometimes you don't want to be honest with a lot of people but um and what if you're what if you're a monster up. one day then all those people know <laughs> yeah you know i mean but that's the thing i never i never met my monster until recently and so i always hid my monster and now i've, I've, I've truly uh <laughs> learned how to let my monster out it's a good thing yeah, a good thing. But collaboration. So I enjoy collaborating I, I, on this album. I love collaborating with Johnny McDade. He's a really, really amazing writer and producer and person who could just honestly, I just call him my therapist because we sit in a room and he'll ask me questions that no one will take the time to ask me or think about. And so what that brings forth is, is really, really powerful. Uh, I really enjoyed writing with a gentleman named Sebastian Cole. He we wrote Time Machine together and also Perfect Way to Die. And he's very prolific. I think he's a, a one of the most powerful writers that I know. Um, I also enjoyed working with um, with uh, The Dream. He's somebody that I hadn't worked with before, but I've always known of him. And yeah. when we got together, he has like a certain magic to him and like just energy to him that's you know, that's invigorating. So it's cool because you get to, you get nobody, nobody's going to come up with what I'm going to come up with and I'm never going to come up with what they come up with. So when we put it together, it's like kind of fascinating. Yeah. And they're, and they're ultimately working for, to honor your voice and your vision. So whatever they bring, you know, it's only going to you know broaden your trip, you know? 
Yeah, it enhances. Absolutely. For sure. 100%. So when you were younger, was there ever a time, because I mean, you had big hits right away. It's interesting. I was looking at some research that, you know, because Aretha Franklin left Columbia too to go to Atlantic. Right? For for similar reasons. That's reason. the reason why I didn't feel so bad. You, that's why you didn't feel so bad? Yeah, once I found out that they messed up with a read, like Columbia definitely, you know, just didn't know what they had in me. And, and I can't blame them because I'm an anomaly and I'm definitely something that can't be defined. And so, you know, business people don't like things that can't be defined. No, they want to like, put you in a box. Antithesis of commercial, yeah. right. right? Right. So, so that, so that, that I don't blame them. But once I found out that they didn't know what they had in Aretha Franklin too, I was like, oh, they just stupid. <laughs> yeah, and she did. She did like ten records with them. Crazy how long she was there. It's That's crazy. And then she, and then Jerry Wexler took her over at Atlantic and that was it, man. And that was it. He, they, they found their match and that's all it's about, you know, finding your match, finding where you belong. Yeah. I just played Jerry Wexler in a movie with Jennifer Hudson in that Aretha. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I was with the new one. Which movie? It hasn't come out yet. Aretha Franklin movie. Respect. Oh man. Jennifer plays uh, Aretha. So good. That's gonna be so good. You know what? I can see that. Yeah. I can totally see that. You can sure. completely be that. <laughs> be, be a be a cranky Jew? Yeah, I can. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you are? <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> right. I, hey, I have my uh, I have my monster as well, and I've known my yes. monster for a very long time. <laughs> now, when's the first time you met your monster? Uh, I was probably like nineteen. Mm. So that and, was the first time you let it out. Yeah, I didn't know. Just uh, uh, I didn't know what, what he was up to. But you know, I was uh, I was in my first real relationship, and uh, you know, when you love somebody and you're not used to being vulnerable, you know, sometimes that's when the monster happens. Because it's scary. Like you have to protect yourself by that's, all costs. Like you're not gonna you're not gonna right. hurt me. I gotta protect myself. That's this right. Is crazy. Yeah. If, I get it. I get it. <laughs> How did your, when did you meet your monster? Well, I only met my monster recently, as I told you, because I, um, you know, uh, in a lot of ways, I think I've always been kind of the level headed one. Yeah. And so, um, it's, it's always been my mother and I, so yeah. she, she was always kind of quite wearing all her emotions on her sleeve mm. and so i always had to be kind of the, the rational one and the Control. one that made it all make sense and like figure it right, out and right. calm it down and that type of thing so i learned very early how to be very accommodating and pacifying which is a shame but right because it, sh- it doesn't enable you to have your own feelings or to define your own personness i think so i think i think it definitely uh made me very accustomed to and comfortable with being accommodating and pacifying and, and that took a while to unwind oh yeah so finally when i started to unwind that because i always had to be the accommodating one and always yeah. had to be the pacifying one I always had to be the one that made it okay and the one that made it better and all that shit finally after i unwound that i was like okay i look at look i can't fix everything and i can't fix your shit and look i can maybe i can fix mine i'm gonna try but i definitely i'm gonna have to focus on that oh, and also so just like taking off that wait to feel like you gotta put everything together well it's a relief because that's i think that's pretty much the classic kind of codependency thing right where you just Mm. feel like you can uh you're there to help somebody else you you almost lose yourself 
in trying right, definitely trying to help to other help people. Everybody else. And then one right. day you just spin out, right? You just like right. Like I'm over it. Yeah. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not doing it anymore. But it's good because you got to get to that place. I think. Yeah, to, to know that you're, me. yeah, some things are just, you're, you're powerless over them. You can't control it. You can't fix it. Fuck it. Yeah, you can give it up. Just give it up. Leave it alone. <laughs> just leave it alone. So that's what that song is. I'm done. So done. I'm so done. Yes. Yes. I'm done guarding my tongue, holding me back. I'm living the way that I want. I'm done fighting myself, going through hell. I'm living the way that I want. Like, cut it Finally. Off, be done. Oh, it feels so good. Just like that song feels good. It feels good. Well, so I, but like outside of relationships, I imagine like from the beginning, once you started doing that first record, once you moved over with, like, who are you with Clive Davis, right? You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you started making those hits and putting all that work in that you must have been like just submerged with that personality just in the work. And you're just churning out the music all the time. You probably, did you have a life when you were younger? Oh, no, I didn't know. I mean, you know, everything, everything <laughs> happened for me very young. Right. So, which is amazing and a beautiful blessing. Right. Um, but it's also kind of crazy to have to manage everything and figure everything out and, and keep it all kind of spinning, um, you know, from about 18 on, 18 until today. So I definitely didn't really have a traditional High, uh, teenage experience. I didn't have a traditional young adult experience. And a lot of the times um, it's interesting yeah. for me when I think back on that. But I feel very normal. And I'm really, I, I think I'm more normal than people that probably had those traditional experiences. And maybe in some way I was able to, you know, thanks to my mother, I think, because she's very much a realist. And she always kept me very grounded. And also thanks that, to New York City. I mean, New York City. You know, that's solid. You know what I mean? Like, you know, New York City is almost like when you grow up there and you spend that life there, it it's almost a parent in a way. There's something about You're the, right. the personality in New York. You are so right, because I think the first time that I really, you know, came in contact with making a lot of choices for myself and especially under the scrutiny of people or whatever, or pressure of whatever, um, I, I, I knew what I didn't want right away. And I knew I didn't want it because of New York. I was yeah. like, I don't know about all these other things. Yeah. But what I know is that I'm not going to be doing this. And and that was that was that was helpful. It really did. It did parent me in a lot of ways. Yeah. And it, I think like, you know, especially, you know, with the with the huge song, I mean, you know, Empire State of Mind, it, it's almost replaced a New York, New York as the song for New York. <sighs> <laughs> you guys did it. <laughs> no, that's crazy. No, I mean, that's right? literally crazy and we're we're super proud of it and we always look at each other like what like yeah. seriously but like it, it seems like but you're you're like a lot of these songs it's very hard for me to on the new record i mean want just stay with that like it seems like the underdog song is sort of a almost like an anthem out of respect for you know people that struggle and you know from what in some ways a little bit what you came from maybe a lot of what I came from. I mean, I definitely defy the odds. My my mother defied the odds for sure. Yeah. Without question. So there's there's no question that that's our life. And it's also the hundreds and thousands of other people that, you know, are are not expected to 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 be able to make it out of whatever situation or circumstance they're in currently. And I think, you know, we all have that possibility sure. you know so it's definitely yeah. that's why that song is so the song is actually really about like when you also when you meet people and you don't know them and how do you actually open yourself to 
do you, do we actually see each other or do we kind of just pass each other in our busyness? Do we know our story, each other's stories or do we just kind of like, you know, well, are yeah. so ingratiated in our world? Well, that's sort of like in a few of the songs, like Gramercy Park, it, like too, a little bit, right? Gramercy Park is one of my favorites, like the one of my favorite songs I ever I love ever that wrote. groove on there and that like it's really kind of an intimate song. It's not, you know, it's a little more... Uh, it feels personal, like the instrumentation feels very sort of uh, candid, and y- you know what I mean. Like it's definitely very raw, very stripped back. Yeah, yeah. Totally, like you know, folksy, and yeah, I, love, and I love that about it. But I love most importantly is like about the way that you, you change yourself unknowingly because you love somebody, thinking that you're doing it out of love, but only to find out that you've lost yourself. Right, right, because that's what I was thinking when I heard it. I was like, because there's a a line in there where it's sort of like, you know, you fell in love with somebody like you don't even know really or something like something along those lines, right? Like now you've now you've fallen for a person that's not even me because I forgot about the person that I used to be. Oh my God, did you? Are you? Is everything okay with your husband? What's going on? That is, you know, honestly, I find that me and my husband are amazing. I think that I find that happens with my friends oh, okay. and different relationships yeah. that I've had in the past where yeah. I wasn't so solid or I didn't really understand how to be clearly myself. I was like a more of a shape shifter because, you know, I was just learning. Yeah. It's kind of, yeah. I was wondering about that. And uh, truth without love is a lie. Where'd that come from? Mm, I love that. I mean, I, that's one of my favorite I mean, like it, songs. It's a nice, it's like the phrase, like I, I can't stop thinking about, you know, the poetry of it. Yeah, I mean, I think that it means a lot of things to a lot of people under different circumstances. But for me, I feel like you can have all the truth in the world and you can be spitting all all the truth in the world. But if you are not saying it with love, how does that person receive it? Is it actually the truth or is it just a lie? So it's like, I think that I think there's such a a power in that poetry. You're right. Um, And and, you know, you you know, it's like this 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 honest delivery in that song that I, I i love yeah and you can also use like truth as a weapon sometimes you know not saying something is more loving than saying something mm, that's true that is true but i think it's interesting you say that you didn't know like who you were or how to hold on to yourself throughout a, a, a lot of what you were doing because like i feel that on this record when i listen to the other records that you know you kind of your voice is in the cradle of yourself now mm. you know what i mean Yes. Like, I mean, I, I mean, you could, you have a great voice. You've always had a great voice, but now you feel some wisdom and now like, you know, you're connecting to that wisdom and to, you know, to your heart, you know, you're not, you know what I mean? It, it, you can definitely feel the weight of it now. I also realize that I don't have to try so hard. I think sometimes, you know, you, you try <laughs> yeah. so hard to like hit the thing or sing it strong or do this impressive, whatever. And it's like at some point you could actually just speak your truth and just say what you feel and you can deliver it in so many different ways. And there's not just one way to be great. And I think that, you know, that's some of the stereotype and we have to break down as humans because we think, man, I'm only great if I. So so it's it's cool to be able to not have to try so hard. Right. And sometimes like if you're one of those people that never thinks you're doing good enough, there's Mm -hmm. no end to that. And you're just going to, you know, burn yourself out. Right. You never be happy. You're right. You do have to recognize what's special about you, you know, which right. I and also is... just be like, that, that was good. You know, like I did. All right. I, I, here's the thing I always get do is sort of like I've been doing this a long fucking time. 
So like, right. So like, you know, whatever I think about it, I know how to do this. So like, I don't have to beat myself up thinking I don't know how to do stand up or whatever the hell I do. Right. Right. So I, and then you can relax a little bit and at least enjoy what you do. You know, and I, strangely enough, I have a kind of an opposite feeling. I feel like every time I do what I do, I don't know what I'm doing. And I actually, I mean, of course, I know I've done it before, but I don't exactly know how it's going to come to fruition this time. You know how when and that's okay though. But yeah, I'm the process. cool with that. Whereas yeah. before, I think I felt like I had to know or I had to be able to be in control. And was it going to be good enough? And what if it wasn't good? I let I worry less about that now. But but you know you have the skill set. You may not know how the piece is going to unfold, but you know I can play piano. I can sing. I can work with these people. Yeah. I can write the song. We don't know what's going to happen, but. I know the craft it's is in place. Yes, yes. I, th- I definitely put in my 40,000 hours, so <laughs> yeah. about that. I'll, I'll say, I'll say. Well, look, I, I know you got to go. Maybe we can uh, pick it up again. It was great talking to you. I love the record. Hey, Amen. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to talk to you. Thank you for thinking about it, being putting your mind on it and connecting with me and, and all the good things. I, I can't wait to talk to you again. Okay, good. Take care. Good luck with the record. Thank you, man. Talk to you later. was fun right we locked in i liked her a lot and i liked the new record her new record uh alicia is out now wherever you get your music so here's an upbeat thing before we get to john leguizamo i've changed my opinion i've changed a long-held opinion and uh i'll share it with you and it was not a great opinion but i didn't Years ago, when I saw Robert Altman's Long Goodbye with uh, Elliot Gould, I didn't think it worked. Yeah, granted, as time went on, I realized I was the only one that thought that. And I love Altman. He made one of my favorite movies of all time, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. But I just couldn't lock into The Long Goodbye. And for some reason last night, I don't know how I got there, I ended up watching One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which, you know, I don't know if you've read that book by Ken Kesey. The book is genius. It's written from the point of view of Chief. But the uh, but the movie's pretty fucking great, too. In that last scene where Chief's like, I'm going to take you with me. You know, it's like, wow. All right. But then I got from there somehow to uh, to the long goodbye, and it was fucking great. Elliot Gould was great just turning that form, the private dick movie on its head in that 70s way. Sterling Hayden. I mean, it's just like I was completely flabbergasted at my younger self for being such a dummy. Do yourself a favor and watch The Long Goodbye. I think it's on Amazon Prime is where I watched it. And of course, Cuckoo's Nest, if you haven't seen that lately. They're working you like they worked my father. The Combine, that's in the book. Anyway, look, John Leguizamo is somebody I never really met, though he claims we did, but I don't, it's all right. I'm surprised I didn't. I used to be on the Lower East Side a bit, and yeah, I knew he'd come from there at some point. Anyways, it just it hasn't happened. We haven't met, we haven't talked, and I didn't know how it would go. But he's got this new movie called uh, Critical Thinking that he stars in and he directed. And you can watch it on most video-on-demand platforms. And uh, he put his heart into it, and he puts his heart into all his stuff that he's doing on terms of, like, especially his solo shows. And I was happy that... Uh, the conversation went well. This is me talking to John Leguizamo.
sideways. That's interesting. Uh, it'll, it'll come around. I'll tell you. Give, give it a moment. You're high maintenance. Yeah, I, uh, you're, I'm high maintenance? <laughs> Me? <laughs> what, what is, where are you? Are you in New York? I'm in, yeah, Manny Hattie. Oh, yeah? yeah I yeah. see you, you got your Emmy behind you. Is that an Emmy? Yeah, subliminal, yeah. <laughs> What's that, for Freak? Yeah, that was for Freak. Yeah. So My Tony's uh, upstairs. How many, you got one of those or two of those? I got only one of those. Uh-huh. Well, you, you got to get it up there. You got to get up there next to the other statue. <laughs> no, I, I spread it around, so I, I, I boost myself on every floor. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, like, every room you walk into, you're like, look what I <laughs> There's did. There's a little something. There's a little <laughs> tribute to, to my achievements. I'm winning. Look at now. Now that I can't I can't leave my house for very long, it's nice to see because, what I've uh, won. Yeah, my, my self-esteem starts to drop quickly. <laughs> <laughs> But believe me, it's kind of true, isn't it? It's weird that, you know, when, you, when you're kind of isolated and you can't really do anything, even walk down the street to at least get someone stranger to go, hey, man, I love your shit. You're just hey, walking John. around. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, Johnny, Johnny. That's how I get in New York all the time. Hey, Johnny. <laughs> but that feels good. And if you don't get that little boost on a day-to-day basis, you walk around your house thinking like, who the fuck am I? Did I do anything? You know, but, but, but you know better than to Google yourself. You know no, the I never do that. of that sucker. Ooh, I don't do that. You do that. that once, you'll never do it again because like the first 10 or 15 are like, you're incredible. I love you. You're amazing. Yeah. Then after that, it's like, you suck. You're the worst. Yeah. You piece of shit. You're fake. You're like, what? Yeah. It's, it's like a, It's like a horrendous speedball. Like you're like, you're yeah, up, yeah. you're up, you're up. And then you get knocked down. You're like, oh, fuck. And then you're up again and you're down. Yeah, I don't yeah. do it. I don't do it. <laughs> I, love, I love the analogy. Yeah. Well, that's what it is, really. Except that yeah, yeah. You know, one side is terrible. I mean, I think well, at least with the speedball, both sides are... They're different, but they're both good. <laughs> right, right. No, no, no. Google, I mean, you Google yourself after that first, you know, it gets really dark, very dark. And anonymity is a, is a, is a, is a strange drug for people. Yeah. It's no, not the social media so much. It's, it's the, the feeling that they, they don't, because they wouldn't say that to your face. Right. Of course not. No, none of them would come up to you, even if they're bigger than you and, and they could beat you. They still wouldn't come up to your face and say that. Yeah. But anonymously, they feel like, well, I could, you'll never know. I could say this and that. <laughs> and you know what though? You know what I realize though is a lot of those, a lot of them. It's their fucking hobby, man. It might not even be how they feel. They're just choosing right, to right, fuck right. with you. They're trying to get yeah, yeah, you yeah. to react. This is like yeah, their you know, they game. They get off on that. They get off on that. Yeah. That's that's the that's the, the negativity def- monsters. Yeah, yeah. The definition of trolling is to poke at you until they hit your fucking sensitivity and you poke and you you react. As soon as you go fuck you, they're like, dude, they got you. I did right, it. Right. Got him. Yeah. And if you fucking get into it with him, I used to like way back in the day, you find yourself like spending 20 minutes on Twitter arguing with a guy with no picture, no name and four oh. followers. And you're like, what the fuck is wrong with me? You lost half an hour of your life that you can't get back. I know, and then man. people stop. They, then people stop being on your side, too, because they feel like you. You're being mean or something. Yeah, yeah. Why are you, why are you beating up on the guy with no friends? Yeah, yeah. With no friend, no followers. <laughs> no, it's not even a real person. So, like, I we've never met before, I don't think. Have we? Yeah, we have. It's okay. You don't have to remember me. It's fine. It happens. No, I remember you. I know you. But where do no, we No, you meet? don't remember me. Where was oh, it? Well, yeah, I know you, but where? <laughs> no, yeah, where? Emmys. Remember, we were at the Emmy party oh, together yeah. a couple times. Oh, I've only been to the Emmys once, once, (laughs) one time. 
Then how come I remember? I've been there a lot of times. How come I remember you? Because I, I, you know, I make an impression, John. I, you already made an impression. It must be you. It, it, it must be your charisma. Yeah, exactly. No, but yeah. I mean, like, I, of course, I know you, but I didn't like. But we were in New York at the same time. I never met you when we were kids. I was down. I was in New York. I was on the Lower East Side, eighty-nine to ninety-two, and then at sixteenth. I was and, there. I was there a lot. Yeah, and then I was at sixteenth and third from like you know ninety-three and night to ninety-five, then out in Astoria forever. But like I like I'd heard I knew you around, right? Weren't you a, yeah. a Lower East Side guy? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I, I was LES. You know, obviously I'm from Jackson Heights, Queens. That's where where I'm from. But you know, I made my mark was in LES. You know, all the performance art spaces downtown. And I lived on Staten and Ridge. Then I lived on Seventh and C and D. That's for it. a long, long time. You remember Hammerhead? Oh yeah. <laughs> do, do you do you remember later on the game? Do you remember Zoom Schneider, that crazy bar? Where was it? Esperanto? You remember? There was that was later. That was later. That was like in the uh, late nineties, early two thousands. Oh, when oh, it started no. to gentrify. Oh, you talk about Save the Robots. You talk about so the Save the Robots. You talk about. I lived on yeah, yeah. second between A and B, right by that weird. Oh sculpture. wow. Yeah, in the, like, yeah, the garage. That was the yeah, garage. Eighty nine. I, per- yeah. I performed there. That was a performance space. Right. So wait, I did so Trickorama there. You did to start at yeah, the beginning. I started there. Yeah. So you grew up in Jackson Heights the, till at what age? What, what do you mean until what age? Like, I left like till college, and then I left. Oh, and then but you didn't. But you lived on the you. Oh, when you went to college, you moved into the city. Right. Right. Well, I lived at. at I was at CW Post first for two years, then transferred to NYU, then. I, then I lived with my brother at Columbia because I had no money. How many how many brothers and sisters you got? Just one? Well, I have a one full brother, two stepsisters, three half brothers and sisters. Oh my god. Big family. My father couldn't focus. <laughs> if he could just on different things. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. A little sexual ADHD. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. You'll work for now. So uh <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> Like when did you start? Uh, you start. When did you start doing the performing? I mean, I, I'm trying to get a timeline. Oh, oh, oh mid eighties, mid eighties. So I, I was at the First Amendment Improv comp- Company on Bond Street. You know, like everybody was performing there. But except when I got there, it was on the on the on the downhill. When the fuck was uh, that? In the mid eighties? Yeah, yeah. I don't want because that, that was before I got Bruce there. Willis was coming down. Robin Williams was coming down. Everybody. But when I got there, they stopped coming. I, I don't remember that place at all. Maybe I like because I was all stand up, so I didn't know nothing about. Oh, that was that was the improv circuit. Yeah, and then and then, and then I was at Gusto House uh, uh, Avenue A and and like Sixth Street. I was at uh, Knitting Factory, uh, Dixon Place, Dixon Place, uh, yeah, Cucaracha, yeah, uh, Home. You know, these are all the performance arts places. Because I was doing the I was doing the clubs too, like. The open mic night at Catch a Rising Star Mondays, you know, get the lottery and whatnot at yeah. Comic Strip, Ronnie Dangerfield. You were going you were going to try those? You did those? The Dangerfields, Catch a Rising yeah, Star, yeah. Comic Strip. I didn't like it as much. How old were you? Like 19, 20? 20. So yeah. like what now when you did stand up, because that's my world, I kinda knew I kind of I I, I don't think I ever saw you around. Sorry, but I need to put down your world. No, no, I don't care. Um, <laughs> you don't give a wait. shit what I say. <laughs> no, I mean, you can put down my world, but we got rid of you. You couldn't hack it. We got rid of you. You didn't stay yeah. in our world. You went no, to I the other it. Okay. it was not my world. It was not my world. It was like, I felt like, you know, like, I felt like a, like a fish out of water. I was like, it's set up, punchline, set up, punchline, all these drunk motherfuckers. I'm like, 
I can't perform for you. What were you, what were you doing when you did stand up? Were you doing characters? Right. I was doing characters and stories. And then yeah. the, my girlfriend at the time, we used to do sketch comedy and, and improv. Obviously, we travel around everywhere and do improv with di- different improv groups. But I found myself was doing my 30 minute little uh, monologues full of characters. Like, yeah. like if the Bible, if, if, if Jesus were Latin, if the West had been won by Latin people instead of lost. And, you know, I would do those kind of things and, and people dug it. So I was like, this is my thing. So no, that so no, no <laughs> because you would do that stuff and they wouldn't, they wouldn't get, they wouldn't get on board. They couldn't follow it. It was, it took too long. It took too long to set up. Yeah. 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 They, they yeah. just want, you know, they just want, you know, a quick, a quick little quickie. Yeah. Punch and I was it like, out. nah, you gotta, you gotta earn me. So it's right. So at <laughs> age 20, you're like, fuck stand up going back downtown and just yeah, yeah. Dig, dig it in. And were you taking classes? At the time, yeah, I've been. Ta- I was. I was taking acting classes since I was seventeen with some of the, the greats. I was always the only Latin guy, and and these teachers were so beautiful and mentoring, and they knew they they boosted me. You know, they knew that they needed to help me out. And Herbert Berghoff, who owned HB Studios, I was in his class for a couple of years. Lee Strasberg, for a little bit. Um, you were you were you were around when Lee was alive. I was, in his class one day, his last day on earth. At Lee Strasberg Institute on 15th Street, I did a sense memory exercise of something from my childhood, and he died that night because of my acting. I'm pretty sure. So that it's that not just, proven. That just, <laughs> that just that just made you work evidence, harder. But I'm pretty, yeah. pretty sure it was my acting that killed him. Really? You were in his yeah, class when he really. passed away. He was he was yes. old, wasn't he? Old? Oh, very, very, very. He had like a like a click in his throat, like he go around. And I wanted to try to, try to do that a little better than that. Okay, okay. And they're like that very quiet. You could hardly hear them. And, and they had that, that clicky thing. Right. But at that age, do you like, did you find yourself like, I was, I, I took classes from a guy named Michael Howard in New oh, York. Yeah. Famous, famous, famous. Yeah. yeah. Legendary. But like, they get the, they get to a certain age and you know, do you, are you finding that you were there because you wanted to be around the guy and his history or you're actually learning something? No, I learned. I I feel like my acting totally changed. I mean, I love HB Studios. I I, I learned a lot about scene study and scene right. breakdown and motivation, previous yeah. circumstances. I'm gonna get mad acting nerd with you now. Okay. And uh, and then with Strasburg, it was it was more about imagination. It's what made me do my one man shows because you learned how to create an environment imaginarily, talk to imaginary people. You know, you created that all from your imagination. So I never felt alone on Broadway because I had my imagination and it was vivid to me. So he because freed of that. the method. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yep. When you developed the first show, which was that? Uh, Mamba Mouth, 1990. 1990. You, were... <laughs> <laughs> oh, you don't believe me, motherfucker. <laughs> uh, He's like, but, nah, I know you weren't. <laughs> but where, where did you work that out? I worked out everywhere. Home, Dixon Place. Um, what was the woman's name who owned Dixon Place? Uh, Ellie Covan. And who were the guys like? Because like, because I it was so weird that by by the nineties, you know, I was locked into stand up, but there was still what was left of the performance art scene from the eighties. But then there were new people like you know, like uh, Surf Reality, uh, Collective right. Unconscious. There was all these new yep. kind of venues. But you were you kind of got the tail end of the original crew, so. Like, did Bogosian come up with you, or he's a little yeah, before yep, you? Yeah, yep. PS-122, that was Bogosian right there. He was a little before me, because obviously 
he's one of my mentors, you know, one of the people that inspired me. Yeah. But he he was right before me. So did you see what made you realize that you could do these kind like cuz the one person show thing is it's a blessing and a curse to <laughs> Ain't no curse. <laughs> ain't there, there ain't no curse to it. No, I mean there were guys well, what, do you, that, what do you mean? No, you got to explain yourself. I will. I come, will. You better will. Co- come correct. I, come correct. I will. I will. I, I'm I'm talking as a stand-up comic who was out there hammering it out and figured it out in front of fucking strangers who didn't give a fuck, all right? Now, but wait, no, just hang out. There I'm just saying that, <laughs> that, that Where am I not, going? I got that, another, not, I got another not, book. Not unlike stand-up, there are just there are some people that are really good at it, and then there's a lot of people that did some really bad one-man shows. That's all I'm saying. Oh no, no, no doubt, no doubt, no doubt. Yeah, like it I gave mean, it gave people a false sense of hope for their future in theater. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, no, there were definitely a lot of a, a lot of bad one-man shows. <laughs> uh, but you know, before before our generation, my generation, yeah, it, it was always like you know, one-man shows were Samuel Clemens. Not even Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens, yeah. young Abe Lincoln. You know, it was it was all those like very literary uh, bios. You know what I mean? And then it got funkier, right? But there was a difference between like what Spalding Gray was doing and what you were doing, right? There, there, there definitely became a point where because of you and Bogosian, where people were like, I'm going to do a a parade of characters. Like, you know, it seemed like Spalding was more like Mark Twain, where he would focus in right, on an right. essay and, you know, and in his manic sense, you know, present this thing. In and a very raw, naked way, which was the beauty of, of him. Well, was, he's so uh, good. The, what, what, there was no filter. There was no pretense or, or trying to like shape it to make it more palatable and then you and then you got Eric Bogosian brought brought the characters and and the sex and the and then Whoopi Goldberg brought the ghetto poetry yeah and then Lily Tomlin brought the play and then well, I, she was old school that's that's probably the beginning of it right there really right Lily yeah Lily was the one that really brought it and then I took something from everybody and created my own hybrid which was the autobiographical play that you did yourself with all, and I played all the characters in it, right? You know, and 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 that was what I brought to it. Yeah, no, for sure. I was watching. You remember? Just to go back for a second. You remember when Spalding? He would always have this huge book that he'd hardly ever look at, like stuff that he'd written. But he turned the pages, but he never fucking looked so at fast because you know he couldn't read it that fast. Oh my god! But, did but he you needed s- that. It was it was his crutch. You know, everybody's got everybody's got you know. Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah, something to thing. lean on. Some. Yeah. But did you re- you remember like, you know, there was also that other world of performance art that was just fucking out there. I mean, you probably saw that, too, because you were young and it was still happening. Like Karen Finley. Oh, no, I was there. And like, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. who was the guy that used to cut himself? Uh, Athy. Oh, uh, right, 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 right. There were all the all those uh, really interesting, odd, pushing the envelope kind of stuff. I yeah. was with them. Yeah. You know, I'd be warming up with them. Yeah. <laughs> They'd be naked and doing their thing and ba- and smacking themselves on the head on with the concrete walls and and then I go I go up next and I got to do my little story. <laughs> they were probably relieved by the time you got up there. They didn't know what the hell. I mean, I I was the oddball. It was like when you watch the monsters and Marilyn's yeah. the normal one. Yeah, that's what it was like. But they thought she was ugly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what was it that like? What what was the show that really made you realize that you could do what you wanted to do? Was it Bogosian? I think it was uh, Lily. It was Lily, man. When I oh, saw really? Lily, I was like, "That's that that's me. That's what I want to do. I've been doing something like it, but this is what I want to do. But I want to put my just right. make it about my life. Right. Make it personal. And and I added costumes to it. And, and yeah, and, you and did. More, uh, yeah, yeah. 
I yeah. had more of a through line. Right. And then, and then, yeah. And then, you know, it, it became sort of this crazy hybrid that, you know, everybody else started borrowing, you know, right. like yeah. Billy Crystal used it and Lane Stritch. So what was the, uh, how did it work? How did, did you write mostly on stage or did you write on the page first? Uh, it's a combo. So I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll write it all out. And yeah. then a lot of improv, a lot of improv, a lot of rewriting, improv. Right. So you record it, you record it, you record it or no? Re or just no, I don't remember. record. I can't watch myself because then I start to hate myself. But not even on tape? No, no, I can't even stand to hear myself. <laughs> Still? No, I can't. I can't. I have to like just be in the moment and, 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 and write it and just Dude, be. I'm the same way, yeah. man. I mean, I'm the same way. I, I can't. Like I'll record, you know, I've recorded shit forever. I got boxes yeah, but of I fucking tape. I don't to listen, listen to, to it. The damn selves. I, I don't listen to it, but I have <laughs> Hell it. Hell no. Yeah. Yeah, it's impossible. It's but that's interesting. It's an interesting process. So you make notes, then you go riff it out. And ultimately what happens is over repetition, you find the groove you, you want to keep. Right, right, right. And then right. you're in it. And, and it. and then later on what I found out was when I hit my 300th show, it's when it's gelled. 300? That's when it's finally gelled. Oh, yeah. Holy fuck. Because, it, because you know, it's it's a massive undertaking. It's two hours of my own personal life. And and personal life does not fit in three-act structure. It just doesn't naturally fit in. So it's a really painstaking thing to make it a three-act structure. So that that's the difficulty of it. And it's got to be mad funny. Right. And it's got to be mad moving. And it's got to, uh, you know, because my life's not that fascinating. So it's more about my execution than it is about my, my, my fascinating life. Because that's the only two types of one-man shows there are. It's like either you have a crazy, incredible life and, and you just tell it, or you're an incredible storyteller and your life's okay, you know? It's so weird how everything is fragmented now because, like, the, the type of one-man show that you did, I mean, they happen occasionally. I mean, maybe they'll happen again after the fucking plague. But, you know, it seems like, <laughs> you know, TED Talks and all this other sort of, all these other outlets have really kind of hijacked the the sort of purity of the type of theater that you were doing you know what i mean because now people right, right. you know now all of a sudden you hear about this ted talk and uh, people are like that's the best thing i've ever seen on yeah, stage yeah, seen, yeah 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 it's like what the fuck you know like yeah. it used to be like there was only a handful of guys doing this shit and women you know and it was special but now it seems like all the everyone can do whatever the everyone can do it now and either right, right. But, it's, but, but it's still different it's still different i mean sure i, I know i i, I know history for morons the, the 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 way the audience felt especially obviously if you were latinx i mean the emotions that were going through people was so intense i could hear it on stage i could yeah. hear i could hear people gasping i could hear people moaning i could hear people sobbing quietly just because of all the all the pain that i drug i drudged up you know what i mean and i knew it because i felt that when i was doing the research how much pain i felt at the psychosocial erasure of latin people you know because we're like the largest minority in this country largest ethnic group you know we're 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 almost 70 million americans in this country uh, including my undocumented latin brothers and sisters we're the largest voting block 32 million registered voters 73 percent democratic uh, we're 30 percent of the public schools in the nation we're 50 percent of the population in LA, equal to whites in New York City in population, and less than three percent of the faces on camera, less than two percent of the faces behind the camera, less than one percent of the stories being told. The, the smallest represented ethnic group in children's picture books. How sad is that that a child can't even see himself reflected back in a positive way? 
Yeah. Can't find himself in a comic book. Can't find himself in a picture book. Can't find himself. How does that child project himself into the future? Yeah. That's psychosocial erasure. That's how we Latin people have come from, you know, and we continue to thrive and survive. We contribute $1.3 trillion to the U.S. economy every year. If we were our own country, we'd be the 10th largest country in the world, bigger than England. Our women are number one in small business creations at 87%. We saved the housing market at 68% last year. God damn it. Give me my equal opportunity. Give me my equal share of the fucking box office. Of representation. Yes. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting line because it's like it was sort of a throwaway line in the in the new movie and critical thinking, the film that you directed. But like, you know, I was sort of you know, hung up on when you said that these textbooks are written in Texas, you, you know, that is true. I know it's true. I make that up. <laughs> no, I know. But 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 like there there is a control like, you know, what you're saying, the systemic racism, uh, uh, it, it, it also is has this profound effect on the latino community you know it's brown right. people in general and that what the information these kids are getting in public yeah. schools is incredibly limited by design and no, I, I absolutely thought, absolutely yeah and i thought so that con was con control con it controls power it controls yeah who, who if the hunt if the hunter gets to tell the story you're never going to hear the lion's side right you know and we land people happen to be the lion's side because we didn't just get here We've been here for 500 years. We discovered America. We found it. We built it. The British took it from us. The Americans took the Southwest. And, and before that, we were indigenous empires, the biggest in the world. Incas, Mayas, Aztecs, Comanche, yeah. Apache. And we're still contributing. I, I Well, I'm sorry. I lived in New Mexico when I was a kid, and so I, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. New Mexico. I love New Mexico. Yo, it's all Democrat. No, it's beautiful. I was just there. Yeah, I went yeah, up to. Uh, I grew up in Albuquerque. I just went up to Taos for uh, four days just to hang out and clear my fucking head, man. I can't take yeah, this. Everybody shit. does out there. Everybody yeah. always go to Taos to clear their head. Yeah, it's. A, I didn't realize it was such a thing when I was a kid. We go it ski there, but I never. I never went as a grown up. It's the first time I went as a grown up, and it was like, holy shit, this is beautiful. Yeah, when you I grew up, clear headed. Right now I'm all right. Yeah, this morning wasn't great, but uh, <laughs> no, no, but for nobody, for anybody, trust me. Yeah, I didn't have towels, but I still wasn't clear-headed. Yeah, I, uh, but uh, but when I grew up, I think Albuquerque was like sixty or seventy percent Chicano, and it was like it was just, oh wow, it was just that was what it was, man. You know, I knew, mm -hmm. like I love when he said I was watching uh, one of the oldies that I think I was watching Spikarama, and there, didn't you have a friend named Chewy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you must have some chewy. There were some chewies, chewy. man. Yeah, yeah. Chew but that was usually because their last name was Archuleta. So it was Chewy. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that name, Chewy, man. It's such a dope name. It's great. Such, such a, a Chicano flavor, yeah. For fucking sure, man. There's a Coke dealer who used to sell at the comedy store named Chewy. He used to wear a bowler, you know, bowler hat, had a big black jacket. Chewy. Right, right. The, the yeah, little Chicano chewy, look, man? the homie look. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know the word homie comes from Chicano brothers in jail asking what hometown are you from? Are you from my hometown? Are you my homeboy? That's where the word homeboy comes oh, from. Oh, no shit. It was, yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was weird when I was growing up because like you grew up on the East Coast, so the the the, the it's kind a little of the, different. Yeah, yeah. The spectrum of, of Latin is different. Like where I grew yeah, up it's more Caribbean. Yeah. When I where I grew up is all uh, you know, Mexican Latinos. And I was in high school 
when the shift from, I don't know, I think you're a little younger than me, I don't know, but I was in high school when the shift from disco to cholo happened. Like, you know, like 77, you know, everyone's wearing leather jacket, platform shoes, feather hair, you know, but by 1980, fucking button-up flannels, you know, chinos, oh, wow. white t-shirt, bandanas, yeah. like everything fucking shifted. What do you What do you think that was? What What do you think that was? What do you think? I think it was. A, was? I, I think it was a movement in uh, you know claiming Latino identity. I, oh, I think political, that political political. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just think it was sort of it was a it was some sort of reaction. I'm sure there's somebody that knows better than I do, but but you know the lowrider thing. I mean, I saw the transition. There was a time where mm. you know it was just like. You know, leather jackets and feathered hair and, you know, the fucking bell bottoms and shit. And then all of a sudden the cholo thing happened. It was like, uh, it was definitely activism. Yeah, but, you know, that's the same thing that was happening here. Uh, although, you know, this side is definitely much more Caribbean and, and obviously Colombian, Cuban, Puerto Rican, Dominican and, and Ecuadorians and, and Peruvians. We got a lot here, too. But that happened. To, I remember that late 70s, too. Like it was a disco scene. Everybody three piece suits. and Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, everybody started getting hip hop. You know, it was the birth of right. hip hop in New York City, too, you know, in the BX. And uh, everybody started changing, you know, it started, everybody started wearing baggy, baggy clothes. Right. Same shit. Baggy t shirts. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the baseball hats. Yeah, everyone got everything. a little harder. Yeah. Yeah. Fronting, a little fronting. Right. Right. And it was, yeah, it was totally a different vibe and less, you know, less cocaine, more weed, more guns, you know. <laughs> Oh yeah, you got you got you got a little tougher. Yeah, yeah. It must have been also linked up to stagflation because that's also when that happened. You know, the, the country was in terrible inflationary uh, uh, dire right. straits. You know, right? Yeah, man. And the economy was bad. And you know, and obviously the people who suffered the most are always black and brown people at the bottom. And that's where you kind of, I mean, that that is the the pop culture that you grew up in. Oh yeah, I mean, disco to hip hop. That was my life. I'm trying to break dance, have my cardboard box that. You know, I could barely spin, rip my hair out of my head. Almost dislocated my neck. Did you? <laughs> when did I you, broke dance, I broke things. That that that's how that came out. So, did you ever get the hanger break dance? I, did, I just look better for wear. No, you do. You look good, man. You you're holding up. You're holding up. You really are. <laughs> Brown don't frown. I uh yeah I watch. It was weird. How I mean, can you watch your old shit? Because I just like I watched the new movie, Critical Thinking, which I liked, and I thought it was. Oh, uh, thank you. Uh, a, a noble undertaking to 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 sort of share the story of those kids because like really kind of like disenfranchised noble. poor noble what yeah noble well i mean <laughs> no, noble noble so kind of it's sounded a, kind of sending i'm sorry no noble. no 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 i mean like to uh i mean to celebrate you know the underdog and to celebrate the underdog you know in a in a sort of economically compromised way like it, these aren't characters you see all the time so i i, I met noble um, in in that okay, it was right. It was good, you know. It was, yeah, no, it, thank you, thank you. I, it, it, was, it was an important film for me because, you know, uh, I love these feel-good movies, and I think they're really important for us to have much more positive images of Latin people than negative because then, then you know, at least it's vulnerable to demonization like what happened in, in El Paso where they, they shot 23 innocent Latin people just being Latin during what the the shopping fuck? in the mall. Yeah. So, you know, and, you know, hate crimes are up against Latin people. Every other group is down except Latin people. Jews up. We're up. I, Jews are up. Jews are up. Not as much as Latin people. But, yeah, but oh, okay. they, I, we don't want to compete for that. That's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're winning. It's not, it's not a good time to be Latin and Jewish. Yeah. Which are my kids. They're both. They have both. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, my kids are half Jews. Little Jew-Ricans. Um, <laughs> 
right? It's a beautiful so, mix. It's a great mix. No, no, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, so you you thought it was important to tell the story. It's sort of like it reminded me of those movies like Stand and Deliver. Oh, like, yeah. My favorite. My favorite yeah. movie ever, man. I love it, that flick. Yeah. It's so, you know, because it was inspiring to me, like as a young man to see that and go, sorry about that. Uh, uh, sorry about that. It's okay. uh, it, it, as, a, as a young man to see that, it was so inspiring to me. It was like, oh my God, we can do great things. We can be mentors. We can uplift. Uh, uh, it, and so to follow in those footsteps is, is, is such an honor for me, you know? And, yeah. and I found this story of five Latin and black kids from the ghettoist ghetto in Miami over town that in 1998, this teacher, Mary Martinez, made them regional champs all over Florida, kicked ass everywhere. And they chess, had no supplies. In chess. In chess. In chess. Thank you. In chess. And then state champions, and then took them all the way to national champs in America. They won. Yeah. They won. Yeah. And it's like, it's a great, it's a, it's a great underdog story because it breaks stereotypes. And, you know, you, you're able to play Correct. these, yeah, you can play these kids who are sort of like, uh, they're stuck in that world of trying to front a little bit, but they're innately intelligent and kind of nerdy and they're chess geeks. Right, right. But they still live in this world of, of, you know, hardened criminals and poverty. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's, I always like seeing that you, I mean, you did that in uh, Spicarama too. I mean, the, the narrator of Spicarama, you know, was a nerdy kid. And and you right, don't right, right. you don't make these associations all the time. Is that being part of the stereotype? And it's there's a vulnerability to it built in that that is very uh, you know engaging and, and endearing. You know, right, right. Because there's a lot of ghetto nerds and yeah. a lot of gifted kids in our communities, street intellectuals. Yeah, they exist. I mean, that's what that's that's uh, that what America doesn't doesn't understand that you know there there are millions of gifted kids in these communities that just never get to shine, never get, you know, tapped on the shoulder by somebody, never get mentored. And, and they, you know, uh, wasted lives and wasted dreams. They get just, you know, steamrolled or bullied or, mm-hmm. or, or turned out by, by, by criminal culture. But I know, I mean, I was like, you know, I was ignorant. I, I didn't know there were black nerds until maybe eight years ago, you know, and it was so ridiculous, even with the existence of Urkel. <laughs> So what did um, I just watched that documentary just by coincidence on uh, on Win Handman, and he seemed like an impressive guy that seemed to have some some impact on you. Is that right? Oh yeah, you know he just passed of COVID. Uh, I know, uh, I know. Two months know. ago, ninety eight. Uh, yeah, yeah, incredible. What a, what a, what a national treasure he was, and he was inspirational to me, to Eric Bogosian, uh, to Denzel Washington, Alec Baldwin, all these great actors studied in his class and and he was instrumental in in, in my beginnings uh i i brought mama mouth to his class and and he got a kick out of my crazy ass doing bringing all these costumes and, yeah. and doing all these crazy characters and he would talk to me like he was interviewing like he was uh david suskind or something uh, talking to my characters and i would if he would have these weird conversations that the class would kind of be amused by and and then eventually i had these five characters and and um he put it up in his theater i mean he didn't really put me up in his theater he didn't, he didn't totally believe in me because he put me in the hallway and i had to be done before the main stage show and they had I, a platform and 70 fold of seats that they would get rid of before the real show oh so this was at the american place theater american place theater and then the the frank rich review came out and then boom the house was full of sam shepherd arthur miller olympia dukakis uh jfk jr it was incredible 
to come see you? Yeah. Well, let, let, let me just go back. So you first started doing it in his class. So what, how do you tell the? How do you go to an acting class and say, "I want to, I want to take up the whole class with my five characters"? I mean, yeah, you know, wh- why him and what, 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 what got you there? Yeah, <laughs> that's the beauty of him. He was, he was okay. <laughs> I don't think any other teacher in America would have been okay. But he, but he did only. We only did one character at a time. To be fair, so yeah. one character per class was allowed. Oh, okay. So next time I, I either bring it back or bring a different one. And that, that, that's how we built it in his classroom. Because it seems to me that between you and Eric, he was sort of instrumental in, 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 helping, you, in, in helping this form uh, exist. Yes, he, he was instrumental in it, absolutely. Because he believed in it. He, he loved it. I guess he was such a, he was old, really old school. And he knew everything about every play. Noel Coward, Eugene O'Neill. Uh, Sam Shepard, whatever play you threw at him, he knew about it and knew how to make it work. He he was a master. Yeah, and did he did master he Cashman. was he did he help you uh, connect it all through a story, or was that you? Well, that 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 one that one was as that would that was everybody was connected geographically, not so much story wise. It was only two two or three tiny little links. Oh, they were more separate. Yeah, but they were just in the same neighborhood and they 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 heard about each other. Yeah, then when I got to Spikarama, it was a family. Right. And and that that's why that one became much more connected because they were all talking about a wedding that they were going to. It had a little right. bit of a Rashomon yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, uh, yeah. technique. Yeah, it was uh, it, it holds up, you know. It was kind of it was funny. I mean, I watched it um last night. I like to do that sometimes when I talk to dudes that have been around for a long time or women where it's just sort of like, you know, I wonder what they were like when they were kids. And you're like, oh, there's video of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You got footage. Yeah, a lot of footage of them yeah, as yeah, kids. Yeah. You can't watch that shit. When was the last time you watched that stuff? Oh, I, yeah, no, no. I don't, I don't, why, why, why would I watch it? There's, what's the point of that? I'm moving You know why I do it? You know why? Like I know, but like you know, I've done it because they're in my mind. You know, sometimes as a performer, I think like I was. I don't even know who that guy was back then. Right, 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 right. But then, like you watch it, like I watched shit from 1989 on Evening at the Improv, and I and I thought like I didn't have no voice, I didn't have no point of view, I didn't know who I was, and then I watch it, and, and then I'm like, you saw, and then you I like, did I, have was, I did, yeah, I was me. What the <laughs> fuck was I thinking? Why was I so yeah. hard on myself? You know, right, right, right. That but, that that is that is the. I think the point of it is you go back and you look at yourself. Damn, I was so brutal on myself. I used to pound myself and go, I wasn't as bad as I thought. Cause even though, even though you're winning awards or, or you're on Broadway or whatever, getting Emmy nominated, you still don't believe it. You know what I mean? Right. You still, you're still whoever you are to yourself. Even right. though you have, you're holding an award. It doesn't really change right. how you look at yourself. It doesn't really I, I I did it didn't change me. I mean, I was still the same guy, even though I was nominated. I was like, I'm still me. I've still got right. my demons. I still, you know, I'm always like it's extra hard. That demon's so fucking weird, though. That one, you know, it's like, do you have you ever sort of do you know where it came from? Well, obviously, obviously, yeah, tough, 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 tough childhood. My dad was incredibly uh, hypercritical. So yeah, yeah. I know I know where it comes from. I've been in therapy all my life. Really. <laughs> I paid for that knowledge. <laughs> Thousands of dollars. But he was hypercritical, but not physically abusive? Both. Yeah, both. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank God for the physical abuse, because it, it made me really hate authority and, and made me really disconnect from him. So that I, that was a good thing. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I try to do that, too, where, you know, my dad, you know, he was a raging monster. And you just try to, you, you sit there and try to separate, like, I must have got a couple of good things from him. <laughs> and you kind of make It's that. too much work. It's too much work to tease out. <laughs> I'm sure there's some good, but fuck that. The best you can get is like, he was charming with strangers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he was great when he was drunk. Yeah. Right. But you, nah, put, nah, I, you got peace around that shit? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think so. I think so. I've been in therapy since I was 17. I was made to go to therapy uh, in high school because I was that problem child that wouldn't let teachers teach class. So what, either, I, jokes? either I was expelled. Huh? Making jokes. Yeah. Cracking jokes. Yeah. Practical joker, you know, locking teachers out of the room, uh, stuffing the stuffing the water yeah. fountains, keeping right. teachers in elevators. Wow. All kinds of Good. fun stuff. Sound like you had a whole list of things. <laughs> So they, <laughs> oh yeah, no, no. I had a whole program. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so they forced you into therapy. Yeah, which was great. You know, obviously, I, I was incredibly resistant to it. Yeah, because I was seventeen, and what seventeen-year-old guy wants to be in therapy talking about their problems with with a stranger? But eventually, it, it, it was like I started to realize the good of it. You know, and yeah. how it started to flip flip my whole perspective of life and, and the self-sabotaging right and self-destructiveness started to like oh oh i'm out i'm 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 doing myself i didn't realize yeah what the fuck is that one you know like i'm trying to figure out if i if i've got a handle on that why do we self-sabotage and self-destroy because oh because you know we assume we're shit because of whatever we were told so we yeah. honor that narrative yeah, yeah, because we're comfortable with that narrative. We right. know that narrative. Right. It feels familiar. We think it's love. Right, right. But it's not. Right. Yeah. Right. Oh, man. And That's you continue the... and you continue it till you break it and you go, oh, I am. It's not, the world's not doing that to me. I'm doing it and perpetuating it. <laughs> right, right, right. It's all inside job. <laughs> yeah, but, right, 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 right. But you never got, you <laughs> like, but what was your primary uh, means of self-sabotage? You weren't a drug guy, were you? No, no, I was, I was, I wasn't a drug guy. That was not, that was not my thing. It was yeah. just, I guess, just hostile and, right, and right, aggressive, right. very, very right. aggressive. And right, right, yeah, you and, were and an always asshole. making fun of people. <laughs> yeah, 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 kind of. When I was funny, I wasn't, and then when I missed, yeah, 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 that's, <laughs> yeah. That, that's how you measure it. That joke worked. That one, you're now you're an asshole. Yeah, that one. That lady's crying. Okay. Yeah, not yeah, the... exactly. <laughs> yeah, people from high school still say, "I remember, remember the time you made me cry." Uh, and I'm like, I'm sorry. I I'm always apologizing. Yeah. But yeah. Well, it's like that bully thing. You know, you got a parent that's a bully. You're going to have a little of it in you and you got to kill it. Yeah. Basically, yeah. you do. You got to snuff it out. Now, when you started doing like, well, what was it like? Like in that? I mean, we're going back. But I mean, to have Sam Shepard, Arthur Miller. Oh, I mean, wow. I mean, because like in a lot of ways you were. John Malkovich. Did I finish? Raul Julia. No, they all came George on. George Plimpton, remember him? Yeah, the same night. It was, it was, it was only seventy seats. Come on, it was the right. tiny. I was, I was, I wasn't in the real stage. I was in the hallway. I had to be done by eight o'clock because it was a real show coming up. And right? No, out. yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. when the Frank Rich Review came out, all these people came right. to the show. To the little show. To the tiny little show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe they were gonna. Maybe they were gonna go to the main show and they got there early. I don't know. It could have been that too. No, Frank, <laughs> Frank Rich is a smart guy. I like reading mm -hmm. that guy. Is he still around? Oh yeah, but he's he's much more political. He's he did a great article uh, a couple of years back on on Roy Cohn. Mm. That was unbelievable in uh, New York Magazine. Did Roy Cohn come see you? <laughs> 
probably did. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think I was his flavor. Was it, did did Trump come? No, 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 no. I don't think he. I don't think it's he so, likes uh, art. Yeah, I don't think he likes anything. He, uh, I saw him in the clubs. I always used to see Trump in the clubs. He was at every premiere at every club. Yeah, always scouting for talent. If you know what I mean. Sure. Yeah. Oh, you mean in the dance clubs and shit? Dance clubs, premieres, any party, any any big party, he was always there. That's the funny thing about people who have been in New York their whole life. That clown has been around forever. Ever. We knew he was a clown. I mean, that's the thing. You always like, you know, there's that guy. He's always, and yeah. he's like, you know, scouting, scouting. Yeah. yeah. I, I remember being on Conan O'Brien, and he was the first guest, and I was the second guest. And, you know, the segment producer, Frank Smiley, you know Frank? Oh, I know Frank. I yeah, know yeah. Frankie forever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Frank says, uh, he comes into my dressing room. He's like, you want to meet Trump? And I'm like, you know what? I don't. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> like, I knew then. I'm like, what am I going to say to that fucking guy? Like, he... What do you got to say to him? And you got nothing in common. Yeah. You knew he, he wasn't rich. He's a creep. <laughs> he was just a creep, you know? Right, was, right. It, basically, basically. That's why we all knew in New York City. That's why when, <sighs> when you saw The Apprentice, you didn't believe it. You knew it was, it was all made up. It was oh a sitcom, God. basically. It's such a fucking nightmare. So, did you talk to any of those people, though? Did you become like you know, like do you do you have peers? Oh yeah. Well, because I realized that there was only one exit out. Uh -huh. So, as soon as they, I was done, I would run outside to the backstage door and go to that front door and be at that door as they were walking out. And they'd have to talk to me. <laughs> But, uh, and they had to say something nice because you can't be mean if you meet me right up front. Right. And and Arthur Miller, Arthur Miller was so tall, man. Really? Now he was what, a big lanky dude. Big lanky Jew. And then, and, yeah. and, 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 and 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 Sam Shepard's a tall lanky. It was like, God, to be a playwright, you got to be tall and lanky. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna have to work extra hard. Did they did they did they say anything to you that resonated or it meant anything or did you you know end up being friends? I mean, with they them? were generically positive so yeah, right, yeah, right, it was cool. right. I, was, I just took it there was nothing real specific that they gave me who's your uh director on a couple of, you work with spike peter askin peter askin peter askin's your guy yeah we used to be really tight peter and i i mean i i guess you know life takes you to different sure, paths man. i still got a lot of great love for peter and what about spike you work with him on a show and on a movie yeah yeah oh spike's the best man i mean i i, I feel like when we did summer of sam I just felt like I really got to a whole new level in my acting because he just creates a safe space for you to do like whatever. Yeah. And, and I, and I did whatever and, and Mira and Adrian, I mean, the performances from everybody was, we got to, I, it was the first time I went to Cannes. We went in Cannes film festival together. Yeah. So exciting. Yeah. yeah. And like over time, like you, I mean, you work all the fucking time. So what, what determines, like I watched, I watched some of casualties of war. No, I didn't. I watched that, um, that Brian De Palma documentary, and you know, and oh they, yeah, yeah. But that you were like twelve when you did that. I mean, that was that was basically, crazy. basically. But that was like yeah, one of your first like jobs, right? My my very first film job. It, it was incredible. Here I am with Sean Penn and uh, Michael J. Fox. Yeah, and we're in, we're in Thailand for six months, and we had to go to boot camp, real boot camp. You know, like with poisonous snakes and 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 with all the equipment like yeah, the real yeah. equipment the weight of it right it's brutal and so like when you do acting which you seem to do constantly and you've worked with a lot of big people over the years i'm sure people that you're you're big fans of um what, what how do you make your decisions you just you know i mean in terms of what you're going to do 
well, try, usually it was always like something challenging to me that that didn't feel boring or corny. Yeah. And 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 you know, since Hollywood wasn't for me, I didn't have to play any of their games. So I just did what I wanted, and I didn't care. So it was like you know, the clown and Spawn, something really yeah. insane and power that was fun for me. Right. Two on Foo. Yeah. With Wesley and Patrick, which was yeah. a blast. And then uh, Moulin Rouge with Baz Luhrmann, you know. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you run these two worlds where, you know, you're a huge star with the on Broadway and stuff, but you'll do supporting roles. You'll do, you know, oh, TV yeah. work. I mean, you, you're a working actor. Oh, I like to work and I like to work on my craft and I like to, you know, you got to you can't stay at the top of your game if you're not playing. I mean, like, like if you're a tennis player and you don't play for a year, your game is not going to be the same. Same thing with acting, I believe. Yeah, and do you still do you train with a coach or a, a teacher still? Oh yeah, I still I still coach I still train with a coach. Yeah. I'm still doing readings. I'm doing readings on Zoom with Ethan Hawke and Matthew Broderick. I'm reading Waiting for Godot. You know, keeping our chops going. You know. Oh really? And you do that oh, publicly, yeah. or you just you know you just hang out with these guys on Zoom? Uh, with Ethan, it's just the two of us <laughs> waiting for Godot. Matthew, we we worked on it for uh, a benefit. Those guys are New York guys, so you you guys friends. Oh yeah, yeah, big time. Well, let's talk about how this like how the, how how did this movie come together? Because this is the first time you directed a movie, right? I, I directed a, a feature for uh, HBO was my first TV thing, and then I did some commercials, and this is my first independent film feature debut. So how who who presented you with the story? How'd you get hooked up with the writer? Carla Berkowitz and Scott Rosenfeld, you know, offered me the the teacher role. Yeah. And uh, and then I went to Miami, met with the teacher and the guys, and it was so incredible, man. Their, their love for each other was so beautiful, and yet they were always ribbing each other. They're always like- Because this takes place in the, late, in the late 90s, so these guys are in their, what, 50s, some of them, right? Or 40s. 40, 40s. Yeah. I think, I'd say early, early 40s, early to mid 40s. And and the teacher, obviously, he's, he's up there. Um, and, and, and I just dug him, man. I did really dug their energy together. It was so incredible how how- he had found these guys and then cultivated them to, to the success. And I found that so fascinating. And then they offered me to direct it because of my passion for the project. And I was like, you know what? I think I can actually bring something to this movie. I really think I got, I got a clue. I like, I like chess. I had to crack the code of how do you make that exciting and visual? Cause it's not. And how, you know, but, and how do you understand? How do you seem like you understand it uh, in such a deep way? Like, I mean, that's an acting job. I mean, you may like chess, but did you yeah. understand it as deeply as this guy had to? Well, I'm very mathematical, so yeah, I was able to break it down, and I was able to break down what the teach, how the teacher taught those kids, right? And 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 so because I'm mathematical, I was like, I grabbed all the best strategies and picked the best ones for film and then broke them down on camera. Right. Some, sometimes I, I, you know, sometimes everybody was like, Oh, they're long, but I say, I want, I want to show how that happens, how that learning happens in a class. I want to show it. And, uh, and so I did, you know, by the end of the movie, you really think as an audience that you understand the moves, but you don't really, no. <laughs> but I, but I made you believe it because, because we had these lengthy classes where I'm showing you, you know, the first move, the second move, the third move, and why, the this, the story behind it. Like that guy, Marcel Martinez, the, the real guy, when we, we do a blind chess, which yeah. is where you usually put a blindfold or they turn your way. And he can play up to 10 guys. In the movie, he just played five, five or six of us. 
and he doesn't see the board. We just call out and he plays all of us at the same time. That's a real skill that guy has. That's that's his real skill. He was going to be international chess champion of the world. And he was disqualified on a technicality. Uh, They said he wasn't naturalized in in time, some bullshit technicality. And he never played. He was so heartbroken and crushed by that, that he never played chess again. Oh my God. Really? Mm -hmm. Yes. True story. True story. That's sad. Wow. Mm -hmm. So I think, but like in, in terms of what you're saying as a guy, you know, where we're at in our life and, and you're sort of, um, kind of a passion uh, and responsibility to somehow mentor uh, young Latinos into uh, into believing they can uh, find something better in life. It, this seems to be the natural arc from Latin history for morons into, oh, yeah. in, into this Absolutely. movie, you know, where I have to assume that throughout your career, people have approached you and thanked you for, you know, showing them that they there's another way to uh to express oh, absolutely, yourself absolutely and i think i think that's the payoff of life when it comes full circle you know i'm in the august of my years we're not that <laughs> old are we <laughs> when, when, when? i think we're in the august it's not fall yet but it, it, it gets there. <laughs> when it's winter it's over okay all right fine i'll, I'll take august yeah yeah the august of our years you know and then people come back and they say you know i i, I write because of you i do comedy because because of what i saw you do that you you could do it and you know that that's the big payoff man that's what i wanted to do because when i was younger you know you just didn't see yourself anywhere and it was almost impossible to believe that you could do anything but luckily i grew up in new york and it was like wait a minute i see movies i see comic books i see tv i know we don't exist there but wait a minute in my real life Latin people are doing everything. Right. They're running things. They're running <laughs> yeah. shit. They're they're closing deals. They're they're doctors. They're everywhere. But yeah. in the other media, where we don't exist, so I knew there was a big bullshit disconnect between the real world and 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 and, and media. Wow. I mean, it was just I, I knew that. So that's what gave me the courage because I go, this is real world. That's not. That's interesting because you know it's like. It... I just it just struck me just now that you know being somebody like who grew up like me you know I'm, I grew up you know with good you know with uh, open-minded parents progressive yeah. people but because of the media that we take in which is the only media available at that time you do get a specific uh perception of the world which was exclusionary and it's right. interesting to me how you know, when people are like, how the fuck are all these people Trump supporters? Well, that's exactly the same thing they're doing. They, they're 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 feeding their brains on on specific media right, right, that right. Re- that that enforces their perception of what the world is like. But it's by choice. But it's the same propaganda. It's well, the same. It's a, tool. Di- it's a digital world where we all can live in our own bubble and never have it questioned. But you're you know? but, but you're saying, though, is like. The, the bubble used to be all of us and it was exclusionary and system systemically racist. Right. Right. It, it, it was just, a, I mean, it's just like they, they didn't even have a concern that they had to include us anywhere. I mean, they had no reason to include us because no, nobody was calling them out. Right. But, but we all felt it. I mean, everybody felt it. I mean, that that's how Latin people can be demonized. I mean, I, I that's why I, that's my mission to stop that nonsense. When I found out that, Latin kids are the least represented in picture books and with 30% of the public school population across the country. I mean, that was, 
that was heartbreaking to me, heartbreaking. And it's my mission to do something about it. It's crazy. Well, thank you, though. Thanks for, for doing that. And then thanks for making the, the, the touching movie and all the well, other work. You, my brother. It's nice thank talking. Thank you for having me on. I, Try to remember me at the Emmys next time, will you? Hey, look, if I ever get to the Emmys again, I'll <laughs> I'll, I'll make sure to to say yeah. hello and I'll remember. Oh, you'll be you'll be there. You'll be all those award shows. I know you will. Okay, buddy. Take it easy, man. Take care of yourself and me. Thank you. Okay, that was John Leguizamo uh, and me talking. I feel like I just heard a sound go up. Where, where was that coming? Am I am I losing my mind now? And now I'll do some things on my guitar. Why not? It's what I do here. LaFonda, live, fly on, feline angels.